0: Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to be looking at uh, the Helmet of Salvation this week. And so there's three kind of three sections that I want to break this down in and kind of draw our attention to some things. And the first one is, the number one in your notes, is the soldier's helmet. So remember here that Paul is using this analogy because everybody understands what a Roman soldier's uh, uh, armor and outfit looks like. Everybody during this time, the, the people he's writing to. And this is, a, thank you for putting that picture up, Jules. Um, this is not the, an exact uh, replica of the, of the Roman soldier's uh, armor. There was no cape. Um, but this is the least cheesy picture I could find to kind of display it to you. The reason that we want to make sure that we have this in our mind and this picture in our mind is because if Paul were writing to us today, he would talk about how we understand a soldier, combat boots, camouflage, a big rook pack, AR-15 or an M-16, depending on who you are and what branch of the military you're in, <clears throat> um, a combat helmet, and they would and, and um, a body armor. So when over, when in our current culture, in our you know military-friendly culture, in our Call of Duty video game culture, um, we understand what these soldiers look like. He's using this reference to them because they understand what these soldiers look like. They understand exactly how. They dress and the purpose for all these pieces of armor. So we need to make sure that we're thinking about this when we talk about the helmet of salvation, not like a, like a, like a, a modern-day helmet that we would think of, but something in, uh, on the, the terms of this. Now, it didn't, most of them didn't have that kind of rooster-peacock thing right in the middle. They had an emblem on the top of the helmet. And so let's go down a couple of things here. Number one in your notes, uh, the first line, the helmet or the galia, which they called it, was a culmination of the Italian and Gaelic war-style helmets. It was a culmination of the Italian and Gaelic war-style helmets. So, the Roman Empire, 400 years it reigned pretty much, you know, give or take a little bit on that end. Um, Typically um, viewed as about a 400-year stretch as the world's largest superpower. They were um, the top of the top militarily. And as they began to expand their their territory, occupy, take over, spread out the kingdom um, of Rome, they saw the way other nations, the way other militaries built their helmets. And so what they started to do was integrate the designs of these other places, these other militaries, these other areas into the design of their own helmet. Um, Next on your notes, they had a substantial neck guard, visor, ear cutouts, and eyebrow ridges. They had substantial neck guard, visor, ear cutouts, and eyebrow ridges. So this neck guard was um, was a curved piece that went on the back of the helmet to protect the neck. So if you got attacked from behind—a sword, an arrow, a sharp object, a a knife, rocks, whatever that your opponents or your enemy was using. They came from you behind. It would protect your neck. Um, so it was actually something that would extend off and kind of fishtail out on the back. They um, had ear cutouts, and on these ear cutouts there were hinges, so that the so that the the part that was gui- guarding the side of your face could fold out. So that when you take it off, you could actually connect it to your Uh, to other parts of your armor and carry it when you didn't need it. Um, You didn't have to wear it. You would actually wear it. um, They would fold out those neck pieces and place it across their chest and march when they were doing their formations and marching, going places. Um, They had a a visor to protect them from the sun and a couple of other things on the top end of the helmet to try to protect the eyes of the soldier. So the next line of your notes, the helmets were expensive and were very rarely thrown away. The helmets were expensive to make and were rarely thrown away <clears throat> so that means that if you um if you joined you know the military 20 years ago and got a helmet and then they went through a redesign the new guys get the new helmets and somewhere in history as i was doing my study there is a there's a recorded conversations between the old the older soldiers and the newer soldiers and when the newer soldiers would see the guys with the old helmets on, they would roll their eyes and go, okay, Boomer. And so I think that's true. It's or just a real bad dad joke on that one. So anyway, we'll keep going. Number two. <laughs> I'm sure there was some kind of cutting on each other for the old guys, right? Because uh, it's just human nature. But anyway, so, these, things were, so they, these were repurposed. They were not really thrown away very, very much. If someone died on the battlefield, they would take the helmet and they would repurpose it again. And so because they were so expensive to make, they're very valuable and they didn't want to throw them away. So number two in your notes. The helmet of salvation. Now for me, um, we're looking at how, why Paul picked salvation and the helmet to go together. So for me, I, when I would think of this, I was trying to figure out why Paul didn't use um, the breastplate as salvation. Because that kind of protects your heart. So that was kind of my question. Like, well, why did you use the breastplate as righteousness? Why didn't you put that as salvation? And since the, you know, um, the, the secondary reason of, of, of the righteousness was to you know fix our behavior... And that comes from our, the way we think, so why wouldn't that be up here? I would have switched them, I think, um, which is why it's good that I'm not, you know, somebody who wrote in the Bible. But as I begin to get into the study, there is a very um, direct, specific reason that Paul used this to help the salvation and connected it to the Roman soldier's helmet. So one of the commentaries is the pulpit commentaries I was reading for this particular message I was studying for it. And for Ephesians 6.17, here here's what they say. It's the next line of your notes. The glorious truth, the glorious truth that we are saved, appropriated, rested on, and rejoiced in, will protect even so vital a part as the head, keeping us from intellectual surrender and rationalistic doubt. Remember when we talked about the shield of faith last week and the fiery arrows of the enemy, we talked about these, these arrows were, um, these were thoughts. These were temptations. These were, uh, putting us in scenarios to draw out the, the fleshly desires in us. The reason that these fiery arrows, um, uh, that were, that the enemy uses against our mind are not the same thing. They're trying to plant seeds of doubt in our head. Here's why, because if we can, if the enemy can get us to question the validity of God, the salvation, the gospel, the, the, um, inerrancy of scripture, the, 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 the ability to trust what God has given us and the life of Jesus, did it really happen? If we can start massaging those doubts into our mind, those doubts will eventually pollute our heart and it will change our beliefs. The reason he attached the helmet and salvation here is pretty obvious. The truth of the gospel and the message of salvation protects our mind from the mental distractions and temptations of the enemy. We are supposed to protect our mind. Now, for some people, you might go, well, why are Christians supposed to protect their mind? Aren't you just supposed to believe? And you would ask a good question. But I want to show you what I found letter A in your notes. Our mind is important to God. <clears throat> Our mind is important to God. Romans 12:2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect next on your notes when we put our faith in jesus we are born again those two lines born again meaning our spirit moves from death to life i've said this quite a bit here but as a reminder jesus did not come to make bad people good He came to make dead people alive. That's why he talks about being born again. When he tells the Pharisees, when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and the Pharisees, he says, you know, you must be born again. They say, well, how do I go back in? How do I go back in my mother's womb and get born again? He's like, no, you were already born that way. You need to be born again of the spirit. You need to have the spirit that's in you, move from death to life. Because when every single one of us were born, we were born outside of the family, outside of heaven, outside of that gracious, loving mercy of God, and he has given us, by Jesus, a way to re- to get back in. That's the core of the gospel. So when we are saved, we're born again. But I think it's very interesting that Paul take a moment here to talk to the church in Rome. In Romans 12:2, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Paul is telling them, hey, what goes on between these ears right here, inside this skull, the thoughts, the mind that is inside of you, this is important for you to get right. This needs to be protected. This needs to be a place where we clear out the cobwebs, move all these distractions, not take any fiery arrows here, not let those doubts grow and begin to uh, turn into disbelief where people would walk away from their faith. we got to protect this because what happens here is important. Next on your notes. God doesn't demand us to turn off our intellectual brains. serve him he doesn't demand us to turn off our intellectual brains to serve him he encourages us to use our minds in the way he designed them to operate and change the way we think now this is important throughout all of history in any continent in any country but it's especially important for our time right now in our culture, in our country, and the time that we're living in. This is very important because um, in our current culture, um, there has been over probably the last 15 years, maybe 20 years, a rise in something called scientific atheism or intellectual atheism. People who believe that they are so educated and so intelligent and so smart that they look down on people who have faith in God. You know, oh, you believe in that fairy, the, the, the God in the sky with the, 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 the beard, and he does good and bad. I don't know why when I think intellectual people, I think a British accent, it just kind of naturally comes out that way. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. They kind of look down on people like, oh, you believe that nonsense, This is terrible because that is so sophomoric, so elementary. Really. And so what's happened is is that our culture has begun to, to, as we move further and further away from God, has begun to celebrate these people as, quote-unquote, intellectual atheists, intellectual giants who participate in different areas of study in the sciences. And... You know, uh, this is my favorite one. There's a whole bunch of criticisms from people who are atheists, but here's one of my favorite ones is that a church is group therapy for poor, for poor people who can't afford real therapy. That was one of my favorite ones. I was like, hey, that's, that took a lot of thought to get that out. Po- group therapy, okay, the group for poor people because you don't have to give if you don't want to. And then, oh, I get it. So you can't afford therapy, so you come to church and try to learn about God to get your therapy, right? This is, a, this is a funny one. And one of the guys who kind of portrays a lot of that our culture kind of celebrates is a man named Richard Dawkins. And he wrote a book called The God Delusion. And he goes through and tries to make an intellectual case about why it's just ridiculous to believe in God. And that everything that we see, the earth, the sky, the sun, the planets the stars, the moon, everything, just appeared out of nowhere. This is the intellectual giant we're championing as our culture. All of this stuff appeared out of nowhere. It came from nowhere. And if you just give me one free miracle of everything being created, I'll take it from there and explain how God didn't do it. He was interviewed in a, um, at the end of a documentary, and um, the guy who was asking him about it said, do you believe that we were, not even in God, just that there's a higher intelligence that designed everything. And he goes, he goes, no, I don't believe that. He's like, why? Because all these things are fine-tuned. Like the earth is like just exactly fine-tuned for life. Like, why would you not believe that? He goes, well, if there is a mind out there, then it's beyond what we can understand. And the guy goes, well, wouldn't that be God? He goes, no. I said, what would it be? And he goes, Aliens promise you promise you you said aliens and I was like this guy's the intellectual giant. We're supposed to be like Celebrating as a culture aliens the little green guys came and dropped off a molecule here that would grow and evolve and then they just left us so for no reason Right, and then the guy pressed him and said why why do you think that why can't you just say God? He goes? No, it's anything but God and that right there revealed he had turned off his mind, and he got really emotional because somewhere, some at some point in time, he had an interaction with either a believer or a church or with an idea of God that didn't do what he wanted it to do, and that tainted the well for him going forward. He wrote this book called The God Delusion, and if you read the book, it's actually supposed to be by an intellectual giant, but the arguments are are very poor. They're not very intellectual at all. And a guy who's an agnostic, uh, David Berlinski, wrote a book called The Devil Delusion in response to um, an atheist's view of the God delusion. So here we got an atheist arguing with an agnostic. So an atheist is a guy who says there is no God. An agnostic is somebody who goes, I don't know, and I'm not really interested in figuring it out. So you got somebody who is convinced there is no God who wrote a book, and then he's so arrogant that the guy who goes... Well, no one really knows. I better, re, I better correct him on his on on his arrogance. So it's not even a Christian scrap, you know. It was not even Christian people going back at each other. It's atheist versus agnostic. Well, this guy's Jewish in his you know ethnicity ethnicity, and he's wildly smart, like super super brainiac guy, Berlinsky, the the agnostic in this uh, in this particular exchange. He has a Ph.D. in philosophy from Princeton. He's a post, he spent time as a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University. So, this guy is uh, highly credentialed, highly smart, highly intelligent, and he takes issue that someone can definitively say, by looking into science, can definitively say, this doesn't work. There is no God. So the only way you could say there is no God is to to say that you possess all knowledge everywhere, that there's not one smidgen of thing that is outside of your understanding. So most people who are atheists are either truly agnostic or just wildly arrogant. Berlinski writes something that I'm going to read to you slowly because I had to read it slowly for myself, so it's, you know, I say it's for you, but it's really for me. Um, he wrote something here, he used a whole bunch of big words, but I love what he says here in response to the atheist. So these are the words of the agnostic guy who doesn't know if there's a God and doesn't, is not interested in figuring it out, written to the atheist guy who's arrogant and is convinced there's no God. Listen to what he says. He asks a question and then answers it in his writing Has anyone proved, or has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it's here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine tuned to allow the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything as long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with the understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in science or philosophy... Justify the claim that religious belief is irrational, not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt dead on? That last statement, I was like, "Mm -hmm." like I want to just from a a, a study or teacher be like, yes, that's a good one. I like that last line because here's what he's saying. People who claim that God does not exist because of their limited findings in science are wasting their time while proving they actually hate intellectual thought. That's from a guy who doesn't believe in God. He just knows enough to know that he doesn't know. And instead of pursuing it out, he'll just stop there and accept whatever is, and hopefully later somebody will figure it out. That is brilliant and tragic at the exact same time. as i listened and read that i was like man i was expecting that from a christian guy to like come out swinging like you know this is why this is why this is why and here's this agnostic that god used to correct the atheist i think it's part of god's sense of humor i don't even let my guys deal with this i'm just gonna let two of their own guys fight it out that's the first part why our minds are important God's not asking you to turn off your mind to believe in him. Pursue him out. Do the research. Study. Find him. And realize he is the way, the truth, and the life. But there's another part of that scripture that I wish I would have seen as a young kid. Um... Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way to think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I don't know about you, but as a church kid in the South, I was pounded every week with the idea of what's God's will for your life. When I was 14. I don't know God's will for my life. I'm going off the rails here. I don't know what he wants me to do. And I remember being at camps and youth camps and conferences and going to the altar and asking God, tell me your will for my life. I want to know what your will is. I want to know where I'm called to. I want to know what my calling is. I want to know all this, right? That lasted all up until my 20s. And I wish I'd have read this passage because how you learn what God's will is, it's the next line of your notes. We can learn God's will for our lives what I would have seen was if I, let God, if I give my life to Jesus first and allow God to transform my mind by changing the way I think, to not allow my thoughts to default to all of the things that, are, that my flesh really wants. It doesn't allow myself to default into the dark corners of lust. It doesn't allow my mind to default into the pit of hopelessness and despair. God is not allowing me, uh, by renewing my mind, he's helping me to um, uh, not allow myself to get down into these desperate places of irrational unbelief. That's what salvation is supposed to do. Psalm 119. 97 through 105. This is even before Jesus was alive and, and was crucified. This is back in the Old Testament times. A psalmist writes this Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I am always thinking of your laws. I'm wiser than my elders, for I have kept Your commandments I have refused to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word I haven't turned away from your regulations for you have taught me well how sweet your words taste to me they are sweeter than honey your commandments give me understanding no wonder I hate every false way of life your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path he's not a young man standing up arrogantly telling everybody i'm smarter than my teachers i'm smarter than my elders i'm smarter than the old people around me i'm smarter than my enemies because i'm the man no he's implying here all of them have abandoned the teachings of god and he is going back to those teachings and saying i'm going to follow the way that the the, the, the being that created me says i should live I'm going to follow his train of thought. I'm gonna think in his ways. I'm gonna follow his instructions. I'm gonna follow his direction. And as I continue to follow these instructions and directions, what I'm realizing is that the creator is much more is, is much more advanced intellectually and through his overall design and plan than the creation is. And so why would I take the word of a created being who is just like me over the creator over everything i'm gonna rest i'm gonna i'm gonna land with his words his directions over mine and that is why he can stand and boast and say i know more than them not because i'm smarter because i've listened to my creator instead of pursuing my own path it was very comforting for me if you're someone who's asking what the will of god is for your life it was very comforting to me to know that God's not playing a game of keep away or hide and seek with his purpose. He clearly presents it to us in scripture and he directs us in the right path through his spirit. His word is a lamp into our feet and a light that guides us down the path. Where do you find God's will for you as a believer in his word? How do you specifically live out that will, that purpose? You follow the leading of the Spirit of God who directs you in the path to go. Letter B. There's another element of the helmet. And this one is uh, really exciting for me. Another element of the helmet. Letter B. Next line is element. Another element of the helmet. So I looked in a half dozen biblical commentaries in my preparation for this message and every single one of them had the exact same thing to say about the scripture, put on salvation as your helmet. Those six biblical commentaries, next line in your notes say this, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. If we only say the helmet of salvation I start thinking I'm saved. It's a future event. When I die, I go to heaven. When, I'm, when I cease breathing here, I, I awaken in the presence of God. Wherever, whenever I'm done here, I go there. And so it's this thing that's way off in the future and way off in the distance. And that's fine because that's true. But I love the way that they say it's not just salvation, it's the hope of salvation see we can't earn salvation we get that through faith from god's grace but there are moments in life where you can feel like you've been taking a beating you can feel like you've been taking it right across the forehead you can feel the grind of life of worry of stress of everything else begin to just grade on you until it starts to break you down emotionally and eventually intellectually in your mind you can deal with sickness personally you can deal with sickness of somebody you know you and deal with a whole number of different scenarios and you feel overwhelmed by everyday responsibilities these things never go away you own your home uh this month paid the mortgage this month but that never goes away 15 20 30 years whenever your mortgage ends it'll go away then but Day after day after day, I got to find money to eat. I got to find money for gas. I got to find money to do this. I got to find a way to do that. I got to catch up with these responsibilities. I have to provide for the people that are around me. I have to do all of these things. And after a while, it can just grate on you and grate on you and wear you down further. Family worries, external pressures, guilt from personal failure. We hear about the stories of the guys who take their shot and they make it. And everyone's like, yeah, we don't hear the stories of the guys who took their shot and missed and bankrupted them and squandered their life savings. I'm not saying that's going to be you. I'm just saying that there's another side to these things that can become weighty and not just celebratory but even though we as believers in Jesus are in the midst of a daily battle, it does not mean our existence is, mis- is miserable and dreadful emotionally leading this, to this constant worry until we die. Why? Because of the hope of salvation. The hope that salvation brings. So, number three in your notes, believers in Jesus have the hope of what? Number one, or the first dot in the first uh, bullet point there, salvation. Believers in Jesus have the hope of salvation. First Peter one three through five. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. I used to be told a lot that... Um, Uh, There is a room up in heaven that has your name on it, and everybody's name. You have a specific room. And when you get there, uh, you're going to get in, you're you're in, and the first place they're going to take you is to this room, and they're going to open up the room with your name on it, and they're going to show you all the stuff that you could have had on earth, but you didn't because you didn't ask for it. This is wildly unbiblical wildly why because um you were birthed into a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade this inheritance is kept in heaven for you until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed to the last time you do not have to be afraid of getting to heaven and when you get there going oh there's so much I could have done on earth and here's all the rewards I missed out on the greatest inheritance that you have as a believer is Jesus the greatest inheritance is God He is the gift. He is the prize. If you have him, you have everything. I, I, I seriously doubt that the moment you get to heaven and walk in the gates, that you're going to be like, oh, let me see all the stuff that I should have had in my temporary scenario on earth. No, take me to him that's where i want to go because he's the one who saved me it wasn't an act of ourself he is the one who provided us a way there is hope for us in salvation because yes that is coming second bullet point believers in jesus have the hope of a joyful life a joyful life romans fifteen thirteen. I pray that god the source of hope will fill you completely with joy and patience because you trust in him then you will overflow with the confident hope through the power of the holy spirit i am here to tell you today that you just don't have to sit back and take the attack from the enemy on the chin you don't just have to sit in your circumstance and be like well this is just my lot in life this is what was decreed for me to happen this is the thing that God has orchestrated for me and so this is terrible my family's falling apart this isn't working I lost my job the car broke down all of whatever the thing is and you have to sit there and take it and just barely make it through you are not destined to barely make it through and just limp through life and then finally when I get to heaven there's to be happiness and joy there it is true you will have joy unspeakable when you get there there will be joy there will be happiness there however there is hope for you here why because god is the source of hope and paul is praying that god fills them completely with joy and peace because they trust in him then you will overflow with confident confident hope through the power of the holy spirit your confidence in the hope of things to get better to fulfill what god has done and will do in your life should grow the closer you get to him the more you trust him the more you put your faith and confidence in him the more that you begin to reject even though it's got a good beat you only get one shot do not miss your chance to blow this opportunity comes once in a lifetime this is a lie for believers why. Yes, I'm really white. Yes, I can't rap, but I'm trying to present the lyrics to you because this is a lie. You don't just have one shot. You don't just get one chance, and then if you blow it, it's all gone. This is the attitude of an unbeliever. This is the mindset of an unbeliever. I have one shot. There's nothing else in my life that's going to matter. There's nothing else that's going to happen at the end. When I die, it's just going to all be over. It's going to be done. I'm going to be buried. There's no purpose to this life. So I'm just gonna take what I want do what I want Do what I can to feel as good as I want to and take my one shot because I'm not gonna miss it This is the exact opposite of what God tells us in his word. He has grace He has mercy to restore you back to place and help you to get back on the the on-ramp If you took the off-ramp in the wrong spot, you are not stuck because you made a mistake you might have to deal with the repercussions of it because you're responsible and God may allow you to bear the responsibility and the repercussions of those actions but it doesn't mean that you are stuck there there is a hope for you to be restored not only in heaven but here he can take the thing that you did that was a mistake and through his creative brilliance look at everything around that he's created absolutely brilliant they can use that creative brilliance to fix your measly problem. And yes, I said it that way on purpose. Because if you're overwhelmed by it, then you're only looking at the problem and not the God who you have hope in. There is hope for you right now. There's hope for you right now. The next thing that we have hope of, his promise. God's promise. God's promise. I missed one i'm sorry eternity the next one's eternity sorry second corinthians 4 16 through 18 this is why or that is why i never give up though our bodies are dying our spirits are being renewed every day our present troubles are small and won't last very long yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever So we don't look to the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. It doesn't matter what struggle you have now I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt I'm not saying that the pain is not doesn't exist right now I'm not saying that the trauma doesn't exist right now I'm not saying that it needs to that doesn't need to be dealt with what I'm saying is do not allow our minds to dig a hole for us that leaves us in the pit when it's when the, his word is telling us to fix our mind on the hope of eternity that we will be without this pain without these problems Problems. Don't look at your problem by itself and let it overwhelm you. Deal with the problem, but keep your gaze, your attention fixed on Him. Why? Because there's hope for you. The next thing, God's promise, we have the hope of. God's promise, Hebrews six sixteen through nineteen. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it, and without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Now, when I was growing up, now I might be dating myself here a little bit. I probably shouldn't say dating myself in our culture because that could be a total different thing. I'm going to uh, reveal just how old I am. That's probably a better way to say that um, and this, but when I was a kid and we were in school and some somebody would say something that was like crazy, like they'd walk in and be like, hey man, you know who I saw at the grocery store last night? I went with my parents. Guess who was there? you are like, who? Michael Jordan. Shut up, bro. Shut up, man. He wasn't there. No, I'm telling you, bro, he was there. I'm telling you, I saw Michael jordan at the publix last night that's a grocery store in the in south florida i was at at the publix i saw him at the publix no you didn't you're lying i swear to you man i'm telling you that and when we wanted them to confirm that they were really telling the truth we would say put that on something put that on something and the highest thing you could put that on was what yo mama that's right i put that on my mama and people be like oh Dang, you put that on your mama? And the only greater thing you could put it on in your mama is if your mom or dad had passed, you put it on their grave. I put it on my mama's grave on my daddy's grave. That's the only way it was even bigger than your mama. And sometimes people didn't even buy that much because your mama was like the, the, the highest thing. So when people make a promise, what do they do? They guarantee you, I'm going to use my mama's credibility. to. Sh- to I'm not going to let my mama wear this lie. You know, back in the day, they were not going to let, let their mom wear that lie. So I'm going to put that on my mama that I'm telling the truth. And I'd be like, dang, he really saw Michael Jordan at the grocery store. <clears throat> Why? He put that on his mama. Why? They go to the, they appeal to somebody's credibility that is better than theirs. God doesn't have anybody above him to appeal to. So guess what he does? He appealed to himself. I'm going to give you my word his promise, and I'm going to make an oath based on myself because there ain't nobody higher than me. So now when he gives you a promise, it's not just ironclad. He has double ironclad it for you because he's not only promised you, he has made an oath by himself. He is calling on his own character when he makes you a promise. And our number one promise eternity salvation in the future with him that lies before us but he is our hope and he can fill us with hope right now this is not just some pie in the sky oh we're going to make people feel good when they leave the service today no there is a hope that is available to you through god if you will trust him and allow him to fill you there is a hope that can overrun you the next one the last bullet point here god's help and love God's help and love. We have the hope of God's help and love. Psalms thirty-three, twenty through twenty-two. We put our hope in the Lord, He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, O Lord, for our hope is in you alone. You have a hope in God that he will help you in your time of need and that his love never ends for you. The same God who saved us into eternity with him has not left us to endure hell on earth before we see him. He has the ability to save us from our circumstance, from our heartache, from our fear, from our destructive thoughts, from our private despair, from those who wish to hurt us, and here's a big one, from yourself. I used to have a great fear of what other people would do. It's a reasonable fear. You don't know how other people are going to act. You don't know what the driver in the car next to you is having a bad day and he's got road rage or something. You, know, you, don't, know, you don't know what's going to happen on the outside. But what I figured out as I got older is that the greatest threat is not outside of me, it's inside of me. My greatest threat's me. And there are some times that God will save us from outside circumstances, and, but I've found that some of the most powerful times that he has saved me is from myself, from my own actions, from my own choices, from my own destructive decisions, from my own stupid words, from my own moronic commitments, from my own idiocy. He saved me from me. But when you are in Jesus, you have great hope. That's what I want you to leave here with today, is the hope of salvation and the hope that salvation brings. Not just in, the, in eternity. That's great. We want all of that, but right now. How do I know that this principle works for everybody? Because if you've ever talked to someone who is in an underground church or has helped start an underground church, China, Iran, parts of Egypt, Russia, throughout the Near East, Pakistan, these guys commit and trust the Lord and move, knowing, knowing their life is in danger because of simply believing in Jesus. And that guy who's working in a potato field, farming potatoes, understands that when he gave his life to Christ, it is now his job to take the message or it dies with him. And he's so overcome by the value of the gospel that he has by the relationship with God that has been given to him he risks his life to go do that and guess what he counts at all joy when facing trials and temptations how in the world do we have that joy because we continually put our trust in the God who created us and is all-powerful and can orchestrate anything he wants, any time he wants, any way he wants, and he can take your scenario that you've been struggling with for years and go, it ends today, and bam, it's over. I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope. Why? Because I've endured some stuff for a long time worry, angst, fear. God, I thought you said this, but what I see is this, and I don't see how these things match up. And I was reminded as I got into my message this week, Mm -hmm. the message was for me before it was for you. That's the case a lot of the time, but especially this week. Because your boy needed a douse of hope. And not just a douse of it, hit me with a little injection and like adrenaline, and I'll be good for a couple days and then move on to something else. No, a hope that protects my mind as an overthinker and reminds me of all the things that the enemy would like to breed and light on fire with doubt. Set just a little spark to ignite a blaze, to run out of control in my head, to lead me down a path of unbelief. I'm reminded that whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are beautiful, whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things. And I'm reminded where I'm supposed to put my mind. I'm reminded where I'm supposed to direct my thoughts. I'm reminded how to put out those little fires that the enemy would like to start in my mind to drive me crazy with questioning. Mm -mm. If I'm going to go out there and do what I need to do for God, if I'm going to keep making steps, I'm going to take that helmet and put it on. How do I put it on? I take control of all those thoughts. You're not responsible for what comes into your head, but you are responsible for what you do with it. The enemy's got a really good way of depositing little thoughts in your mind. He's really good at finding the times you're tired, spent, weary. Your mind is grinding you down, and he finds those moments to drop just a little seed. This is not going to work. Where was God in this moment, huh? where was he you believe something that does is a lie what you have been given the power to do to put on that helmet and say this is not profitable this thought does not lead me closer to god it is drawing my affection and my mind and my thoughts and my uh, my my attention away from him and i'm going to put that out now because I've been given the helmet of salvation, the hope that salvation brings. I'm gonna put that out and put my mind back on the God who is the one who enlisted me in this army in the first place, and I am moving at his order, at his command. So no more of this getting stuck right here for me. I'm gonna put on that helmet. I'm gonna be reminded of the hope that I've got. I look at people in this room and I could go there's so much hope for the scenario that you're in. But the truth is transparent moment it's hard for me to look in the mirror and say that. My guess is it might be hard for you too. So from the outside looking in I want to remind you of your hope. And that may encourage you when you leave here that may boost you up a little bit where you're not in so much despair and maybe you can sleep tonight but it's not going to last until we do what Paul said that he prays that the spirit of God will be present in you and overrun you and bring you hope and that's my prayer for you Why can't it be my prayer for you? Is because first it was my prayer for me this week. I had to sit in my truck because I was getting ready for the message and go, this is a rough one here, God. I need that hope back in me. I need to re-trust in you and not what I'm seeing. Romans 15, 13, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust him then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. I wish I could take the moment I had and translate it to you, transplant it, transpose it to you. It doesn't work that way. Then someone else would be trusting for you. So the challenge for you is, the encouragement for you is this, Trust him. Trust him. Matt, it's really hard because of what I'm seeing. I get it. Trust him anyway. I've been dealing with these thoughts for a long time. Shut those things up. Tell the enemy to close his mouth and put your mind where it needs to be on everything that's good and pure and holy and just. And do not allow yourself to space to start thinking about all that nonsense the enemy would like to light fires of doubt in your mind trust him